What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi there, and welcome to Prices at the Pumps, our weekly look at all things energy-related. I'm Scott Squires, joined as always by Dan McTagg. And Dan, uh, the last Prices at the Pumps for the calendar year 2023. few things on the agenda today, but let's get right after it. Prices in Atlanta, Canada adjusted tomorrow and Friday, uh, just before the holidays really kick in and Christmas next week. What are consumers going to get at the pumps the next couple of days, Dan? Well, if you're in Newfoundland, you're going to see a two cent increase for gasoline and a slight, maybe half penny uh, decrease for diesel. Same for heating oil. So really not much more than just a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, and of course, the following week, although many of us will be away, uh, I'm not seeing anything that would drive prices up except what's happening with the uh, potential tensions in the Red Sea. Uh, but that isn't likely to have any more than uh, a minor impact at this point. Uh, and of course, if you are in PEI or Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, the price change takes place on Friday. Uh, that gives us an extra trading day, which is today. And so far, the markets look uh, pessimistic based on uh, this week's uh, petroleum inventory report from the U.S. Department of Energy, which means the gas prices may only rise one and a half cents a liter, uh, while diesel uh, sees no change at all, including uh, home heating oil. So we've seen pretty much a downward trend uh, at the pumps for gas and diesel the last few weeks. Um, I know you just talked about what's going to happen this week, but where we are going to be on a bit of a hiatus over the holidays, uh, get your crystal ball out, Dan, and as best you can, again, knowing that geopolitically things can change and that things can crop up tomorrow that aren't here today. But over the next few weeks during that holiday hiatus, so over Christmas, New Year's, you know, into the early part of 2024. Uh, what are you seeing in general with prices? Well, I think the one that we always have to look at this time of year, given that uh, this week is now the official launch to winter. Um, and today, of course, uh, uh, winter solstice. So shortest day of the year means uh, people start to think about, uh, you know, uh, springtime and maybe summer uh, for the next six months. But it's diesel prices that are going to be uh, most watched simply because uh, we've been getting away with relatively warmer temperatures than we would expect for this time of year. Kind of a repeat of what we saw last year. Uh, but as uh, temperatures do drop, natural gas and diesel prices will begin to move. And they sometimes bring, uh, in a very quiet way, gasoline prices with them. Uh, the world seems to be adequately supplied. Uh, again, geopolitical tensions aside, which markets have, relatively speaking, not been panicking about, and they certainly not paid a lot of attention to. Uh, and it's one of the reasons we've seen prices drop over the past several weeks. But come January, I believe we'll start to see prices correct a little bit uh, with oil, Brent in particular, maybe moving back to $77 a barrel uh, uh, WTI in the 73 range and likely staying there. Uh, with diesel moving up about six or seven cents a liter in the month of January and gasoline an average of net two, maybe three cents a liter. What it means, of course, is that uh, 
Uh, there is a high degree of volatility and uncertainty in the markets. They don't know where to look. I note that uh, one of the excuses that uh, is often used by traders to you know trade down energy prices has been, well, Chinese demand is uh, is pretty uh, is is pretty weak. But here we have a historical cold snap in China, which is likely to be very bullish and drive up energy prices, uh, particularly for coal and for diesel and heating oil uh, as a result of that cold. And, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before it catches up to us here in the Northern Hemisphere. When it does, uh, you know, hang on to your uh, hang on to your wallets and watch those uh, those prices rise. Now, I know you reference diesel, which leads me to talk about home heating fuel. Uh, we haven't really had a cold snap in this region yet, in the Atlantic region. I'm, of course, based in Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, the other day we had uh, 14, 15 degrees and a tropical-style storm with wind and rain. But, you know, when that cold snap comes, right now, uh, home heating fuel, relatively reasonable. But what are you seeing there? Because a lot of folks are wondering, hey, I, I still use oil to heat my home. What are we looking at here a couple of weeks into January? Well, I think for those of us who use heating oil, you might be somewhat happier. Uh, propane, natural gas, if you can get it to your fireplace, uh, especially uh, considering the uh, power failure that we've seen, um, really putting a pressure on the idea that uh, electricity is reliable. Uh, but I digress. I think uh, we are inevitably going to see a scenario where we do get warmer, rather colder weather in this, uh, this time of year, January, February, maybe even to March. Uh, but the fact that we haven't seen this in December, I think, is uh, really cause for uh, you know, celebration, if we consider this time last year, that diesel and home heating fuel prices are about 20 cents a liter higher than they are this year. Uh, warmer weather is uh, is certainly a welcome thing for many of us, especially in the next few days as we do our last minute shopping and uh, prepare for those gifts to put under the Christmas tree. That aside, uh, I think there's going to be a number of adjustments to the upside uh, to energy prices. And although I don't think 2024 is going to be a breakup year. I see, Scott, really good examples of where the price you pay at the pumps, uh, whether that be for diesel, jet fuel, whether that be for propane, natural gas, or whether that happens to be for gasoline, is going to be likely a, uh, you know, a carbon copy of what we saw in 2023. Markets are still very nervous. They're going to look for as many excuses as they can to not drive up the price. The market is adequately supplied. And so, uh, you know, the usual patterns are going to start to kick in once again as we head towards April 1. Look for prices to uh, to really move up, especially in uh, Newfoundland, where they haven't had the full impact of the second carbon tax. Uh, when we switch over to from, you know, winter to summer blends of gasoline mid-June, uh, mid-April, uh, the period uh, later after February, March, won't be so much a diesel question and a heating oil question. It'll be very much gasoline and demand. And uh, I suspect that, with federal reserves and central banks around the world apparently winning the battle on inflation, uh, there may very well be a letting off of uh, uh, you know the uh, the foot on the accelerator driving up interest rates. We're starting to see that evidence of that in the United States. That could be very very uh, strong signal of higher demand and anticipated higher demand uh, for energy as we head towards the summer. Dan, you mentioned uh, the electricity and, and the fact that the storm that hit us on Monday, the second Monday in a row that we had a big, heavy rain and wind storm, but it knocked out power to tens of thousands in Nova Scotia, even more in New Brunswick. Uh, and I want to ask you about 
Um, the recent announcement by the federal government uh, about the EV mandate and hybrid mandate that all cars, all new cars being manufactured have to be either EV or hybrid by 2035. We like to look at both sides of the coin, Dan. And I want to, again, this is a long preamble into that announcement that was made on Tuesday about this EV and hybrid mandate to 2035. When you heard it and you looked into it, what was your initial reaction? Outlandish, crazy, uh, can't be done and won't be done. Uh, I say outlandish because there is no country in the world that would do such a thing in such a short period of time. Uh, I also realize this is a country that happens to be the coldest in the world. If you think battery technology works well in the cold, take out your iPhone, take out your smartphone, your Android, leave it outside in the middle of a Canadian cold during the winter and see how, how quickly the battery uh, begins to diminish. It's ironic that we have this discussion, those kind of question at a time in which part of Atlantic Canada continues to be dogged by a lack of uh, electricity, by uh, hydro outages. How are you gonna charge your car when there's no power? How are you going to run your heat pumps when there's no power? I guess the point here is that Canada has always enjoyed a diversity of energy options. By putting all our eggs in one basket, whether that be no more oil, no more fossil fuels, and thinking we can have windmills and solar panels, and EVs, all of which are to a large extent made in China and made with some very, very dangerous minerals that are extraordinarily environmentally damaging to produce, not to mention the labor involved that much of it coming from places around the world where we would not allow those kind of conditions to, to exist, especially for cobalt, coming at a time in which the world's need for copper to achieve these mandates has never been greater and for which we will have to quadruple the amount of uh, energy required to build, much less the mining and the years it will take to get new mines opened. It's not to say that we shouldn't have aspirations to do these things, but the fact that they're imposed, that they're coerced, you know, I guess I come down to the simple point. If it takes subsidies to build them, subsidies to build the infrastructure to charge them, and subsidies to buy them, you know, it's a little bit like the next door neighbor, uh, you know, your, your kid doesn't have friends, so you get the next door neighbor's dog and you throw over a T-bone to make sure the dog's happy to play with your kid. No one wants these things. And those who do want them may be practical in, in certain circumstances, but to a large extent, the lack of practicality really is about political grandstanding and uh, political authoritarianism that I think uh, is not a very good substitute for good public policy. And as a policymaker of 18, 19 years, actually someone who's, <laughs> who's actually passed legislation, uh, by any scrutiny or any analysis, these things fail. And it's not just the EV mandate, coercion, uh, telling you what to do. It's you're basically telling the automotive industry to, you know, go fly a kite. Don't let it get lost. You don't like our subsidies? Go somewhere else. Well, you can do that to the automotive industry, and you can do that to the oil industry with your emissions caps, which are ridiculous. No other country would impose that and force up the price and not make a, a dent in any type of emissions causing global warming or whatever you want to call it. If you think you can throw away sectors of the economy like that and then impose a nitrogen ban on farmers so that they can't produce adequately the amount of food needed to meet the world's demand. If you think you can level all these things because you have an activist like Stephen Gibo running the show, you're going to ruin this country and you're going to ruin lives for a lot of Canadians. And I think as families sitting down to what little we can afford, it's really time to have a sober adult discussion. 
If you think that the small amount of uh, carbon that Canada emits is somehow changing the weather adversely, I think you need a very, very strong basis in understanding science because those who are propagating this are not scientists. It's scientism. And in fact, it's political science. At the end of all of this, I'm very concerned, deeply concerned that uh, Canadians would stand by idly and allow government to do this. I think it's just why so many people are turning their back on this Liberal NDP coalition and not being partisan. I was a Liberal MP for 18 years. I served the party 20 years before that. What is being proposed here is maniacal. It is it completely violates not only scientific principles, but economic reason and the, uh, uh, the fundamentals of thermodynamics. It can not be done. And frankly, it should not be done. It is time for those who are pushing this and Stephen Gibo in particular to pack up and leave the country alone. This also leads me into another question. Uh, you and I have talked here on this program, Prices at the Pumps, about um, some of the provinces vigorously pushing back against some of these federal policies, especially yes. on net zero and other climate issues. And when this 2035 EV mandate was announced recently, again, I started to see some provincial leaders putting posts out, pushing back. This is just strictly your opinion I'm asking for here, obviously, but as someone that was in federal politics, had to deal with the provinces, sees what's going on now, how real is the possibility that the pushback from provinces gets even more vigorous to the point where we almost see court battles over the constitutionality of some of what the federal government is doing. Well, they, those that is inevitable uh, because many of these things do affect provincial jurisdiction. And as we saw in two cases, a federal case and a Supreme Court case, one on the plastics ban and uh, the second one on uh, uh, the... Uh, the impact analysis for pipelines, the federal government lost. Um, it's not to say we should relegate these things to courts, but the provinces really don't have other, you know, levers to operate. Forget the provinces. Canadians don't have a pushback mechanism. This is a federal government clinging to power by the thinnest of, major of uh, majorities. The NDP and Liberal coalition guarantees they always have a majority. So they're going to do this, you know, a little bit like the old Sanka commercial, good to the last drop. They are going to do as much disruption as they can and create the kind of havoc and chaos that I think universally Canadians understand is now very much present. There aren't many people out there who don't think things have gotten worse. And they are getting worse by a bunch of uh, dictatorial political pundits who, uh, in my view, are spending more of their time trying to find ways to destroy a perfectly good nation rather than find ways to bring it together and to nurture and to treasure the things that we do well. You know, it, it seems strange that on a day like today where uh, Norway and Germany ink a deal on billions of dollars, potentially trillions of dollars of natural gas uh, going to Germany from Norway, that this was an opportunity that Canada turned its back on. And it is done because of virtue signaling by a government that doesn't understand reality, much less the world around us. Canada has the fourth, fifth largest reserves of natural gas in the world, Norway about nine. So the fact that we said no, that there is no business case, this is a prime minister and a group of people who have no business leading this country. And I, I, I fear for what's, what's at, at play here. There's still 24% of people out there who think this is cool and great and wonderful. 
what will it take? Will your neighbor have to starve, lose their home? Will your kids have to have no future? Will you have to have extraordinary amounts of debt accumulated in this country? Will you have to drive away industry in which the only people who want to come and you know do business in Canada is when you give them 50, 60 billion bucks? That is not Canada. We're a Canada of affordability and reliability. We're Canada, uh, we treasure our, you know, uh, very much our standard of living. And we are and can continue to be, you know, example to the world. But we have turned our back on the great things that we do in this country in favor of, you know, of, of policies that are extraordinarily dangerous to the country. Remember, you live in a country that's the coldest in the world and among, amongst the most diverse when it comes to energy. Fool around with any one of those things. Ignore any one of those things. And you will only wind up hurting your neighbor, much less yourself. Another couple of things to talk about here, Dan. Yeah. And uh, this is just kind of one from my my own uh, personal side of things. But I'm all about fostering a better future for our next generations. I've got three kids. One day I hope to have grandkids. Who knows? But I'm all about a better future. But I see so much of what's going on. And there's homelessness right across this country. And again, this is a topic perhaps for another day, another show. Yeah. What I'd like to see, and I, I put it out on my ex account the other day, at least for the next little while, maybe governments could forget net zero and maybe come up with a new policy called tent zero so that we don't have tens of thousands of Canadians living in tents from St. John's, Newfoundland, as far away as Victoria, British Columbia. Anyway, that's a bit of an editorial speech from me, my own personal thoughts. Maybe we can have a whole show on that another day, Dan. And one other thing I'd want to ask you about before we... Uh, uh, wrap this one up for 2023. You re referenced subsidies earlier. And again, we're about both sides of the coin here, right? We don't have a horse in this race, so to speak. We're not big yeah. proponents of the oil and gas industry, and we're not out here shilling for the green side of things. We'd we like to see a pragmatic approach. And as you said, there's certainly ways to move forward for a better, greener, brighter, cleaner tomorrow. But having said all that, one thing that I see quite often are detractors of the oil and gas industry talking about these companies that make billions of dollars of profits? Why are they getting subsidies? Why are they getting subsidies? Am I wrong in thinking that there's billions of dollars of subsidies also going to the other side of the coin, to companies that are on the green, the EV side of things? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, if people believe that subsidies and are trained by the green grifters out there to, to, to attack the industry that provides $26 billion annually since 2000, and going back that far, almost $600 billion has been generated for the federal, provincial, municipal coffers. Uh, it is by far and away the oil and gas sector, the most lucrative that we have. People who work there get paid more. The various service industries that uh, support them. I'm in Ontario. There's, you know, 8 billion bucks and probably 40,000 jobs here directly dependent on the health and viability of the oil and gas sector. The world wants more Canadian energy. But if we want to believe the art, the art, the argument put forward by people who don't normally cut, have a business, except their business to ask the federal government for money so that they can write reports uh, and uh, basically uh, polish the apple of these, uh, of these climate agendas and, and these ridiculous policies, then let's take into account what they're really saying. You're a business and you should not be entitled to the same credits, the same, uh, you know, appreciation, depreciation credits. You're saying, they're saying if you're in oil and gas sector and you happen to be, I don't know, a caterer or a handyman, a tool, die maker, whatever, working for the industry and you have your own business, you should not qualify for any type of uh, 
uh, treatment under our laws. You can't create one-off laws. Everyone under business gets the same treatment, uh, particularly if it's sectoral. Uh, there are times when I'm sure that there has been help given as it was to every other business in this country, COVID being the best example. But if you look on a net basis, the oil and gas sector, and they're no big fans of mine. I don't like them. They don't like me. And they don't like my predictions either. And they don't like the fact that I took them on as a member of parliament. The record is very, very clear, starting with this, uh, this old puppy report of the Liberal Committee on Gasoline Pricing 1998. So I'm not new to this. But if you think for a moment that these are subsidies, then you need to understand a little bit more about the Income Tax Act. You need to understand how business operates. Business does not operate on getting money from the federal government. We're now frightfully seeing so many examples of people who have a direct connection to the federal government trough and public monies are going to them so they can say wonderful things about the federal government. If you think that's the way business is off to run, it's only a matter of time before the country goes bankrupt. Business needs to create opportunity, opportunity, and governments are there to help those businesses flourish. If they flourish, they hire people, they create opportunities, they create employment, they create wealth, and they generate revenues and taxes. But if you take away 26 billion bucks from the federal government's uh, re revenues and provincial and municipal governments, good luck because your hospitals will close, your pensions will dry up, and a lot of other things are gonna happen in this country if we continue down this road of saying, you know, get rid of fossil fuels. The reality is that the world's going to want it for the next hundred years, like it or not. And the damage you are asking for is by following these, you know, these false prophets who go around saying, oh, subsidies for the oil industry. I'll tell you what I can say. <laughs> you don't want the subsidies. You don't want the federal government. The federal government doesn't want to receive money from the oil and gas sector. That's one thing. But the federal government should start to stop giving money to charities in this country and start putting audits back on those same charities who use their charitable status to make political advocacy and to dissuade and to, in this case, um, I think very clearly, disinform or misinform people as to what oil subsidies really are. They're not subsidies at all. Quite to the contrary, it's the way in which uh, the law, business law is applied in this country and tax uh, purposes are given. So a lot of misinformation there, but uh, glad to talk about it. Dan, that's why I know that we'll have no shortage of topics in 2024. So that does bring us to uh, almost the conclusion of uh, our final Prices at the Pumps for 2023. Just a few days away from the holiday season uh, for those that celebrate Christmas and are getting ready for it like I am. Uh, what are you looking forward to most now, Dan, over the next few days with Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and all of the festivities that surround it. But for you, what are you looking forward to most? Uh, not hearing from the federal government. <laughs> not hear a peep from those guys. They have been crazy this past year. And I know they're trying to win back all that support that they've lost, but uh, put a lid on it. It's Christmas. Uh, and I know, oh, sorry, you call it a holiday. Yeah, well, I get holidays several times a year. It's Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah. Uh, let's sit back, take it easy, chill for a couple of weeks, and we'll get back to the fight in, in January. But one thing's very, very clear. TikTok. Your government has 21 <laughs> months left. And I want to ask you this as well. I, I actually had a discussion with a couple of uh, athletes that I interviewed the other day about uh, Christmas dinner. And I asked what their favorite part of Christmas dinner is, right? So you've got your plate. And, you know, for me, I'm going to have some turkey on there. I'm going to have sweet potato, mashed potato. I'm going to have the stuffing or dressing, turn up the whole thing, cranberry, gravy, rolls. But for you, what's that one thing that you want to dig into most? What's your favorite part? of Christmas dinner. Oh yeah, of course it has to be the turkey, but uh, 
the eggnog and rum uh, uh, just after <laughs> isn't a bad thing either. <laughs> well, that's like that's like an aperitif uh, during meal and an after meal, uh, a dessert <laughs> beverage. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm coffee with my Kahlua. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <coughs> As my as my dad used to say, my dear departed father, when I became old enough, remember the first time that my dad poured rum and coke, and uh, I said, "How much rum do I put in there, Dad?" And he goes, two fingers worth." And I said, "Well, how much is that?" So he held up. Let's pretend this is the glass. He held up the glass. Let's see. And he said, two fingers worth." <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's all you need, Dan. Two fingers worth of uh, rum, and you're good to go. Well, the Irish in me will keep me uh, keep that in mind uh, when I when I do uh, look at this at the, around the family and the house, and uh, it's going to be a good one. And I wish everybody, of course, a happy Merry Christmas and uh, all the best for and you uh, for twenty twenty four. But in the meantime, I think there's uh, you know a, an opportunity for everyone sort of just to spend the next few days sitting back, relaxing. Don't uh, don't look at your your cell phones. Well, Dan, uh, right back at you. Enjoy the season. Have a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year. And look forward to reconnecting with you uh, early in January. Dan, be well. Let's do that. Thanks, Scott. Merry Christmas. Take care. See you in 24.